me tell you a real quick story. Many years ago, there was a young man who was working in, in corporate America and determined to make a name for himself and a fortune. And in his plan, Jesus came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, I want you to be in the ministry. Now, this young man had no interest in being in the ministry because he wanted to get rich. And they're, they're not, except for Joel Osteen, there's no rich preachers. So, so he, he kind of resisted that, that calling. And also he knew what was involved in ministry because he had married an Assemblies of God pastor's daughter. And he grew up in the Assemblies of God church, so he knew what that was about. He wasn't interested, but he obeyed God and went and became a youth pastor. A friend of his called and wanted him to come and, and be youth pastor of this church, so he did. And, and things kind of went well. And this young man went from church to church to church as a youth pastor and, and really loved it and was very successful until God came and tapped him on the shoulder again and asked him to come to Moore, Oklahoma and pioneer a church. And this young man wasn't interested in being a senior pastor at all. He hadn't been to seminary. He didn't feel qualified to lead a congregation. And he was very comfortable being a youth pastor. But he obeyed God and he started a church in Moore, Oklahoma many years ago. And today, he's leading a thriving congregation and can't think of anything in the world he'd rather do than what he's doing. But now today, it feels like maybe God is tapping him on the shoulder again. And the name of that young man is Brian Ramey. I know you thought I was telling you my story. But it's so fascinating to me how our story is parallel. Now let me just say quickly, and I'm not going to belabor this at all, but if you were not at the business meeting last week, we presented an idea that Covenant Life Assembly is considering combining with Genesis Church, which is right on the other side of Central Junior High, right here in Moore. They're a thriving conversation, congregation, and also a congr congregation that are led by the Rameys. And let me just say, it's not a done deal at all. We're still working on that, working through that, praying about that. But it's been a little distressing to me that I've heard some rumors about this whole thing. And let me just tell you that I'm not going to bail out on you and I'm a little hurt that you might even think that. I also do not have a terminal disease that I know of. I heard that one too. So today I asked the Rameys to come over just so you could get to know them. And, and I'm going to be over there at Genesis Church next Sunday so those people can look at me like a zoo, a gorilla in the cage. and It'll be fun. But listen to me. Listen. This is not an evaluation. This is not a tryout. So for all you church people that love to play, rate the preacher, put that away. We're not doing that today. I've asked Brian and, and Serena and the girls to come just so we can get to know them a little bit and hear their heart. Let me just say to you, Je Brian and I have been meeting since January, and we've been praying together and just seeing, because we've never done something like this before. So we've been thinking a lot about it. And I want you to know that I've come to love Brian Ramey. He is a choice brother, and I found him to be a man of character. So this morning, as he comes to share the Word of God, I want you to open your hearts and receive the ministry from the Bible this morning from my friend Brian Ravy. Brian, come. Oh, your pastor is too kind, but you guys know that. 
Um, he's also incredibly humble. I would say all kinds of nice things about him, but you guys already know, and he would get mad at me um, after the fact. Um, so, so here's the deal. It's certainly not an evaluation because I'm slow. He was about halfway through that story, and I turned to my wife. I was like, oh, he's talking about me. And I, was like, I was like, this is a cool story. I wonder where this is going because I'm slow. Um, also, like, I, I say stupid things. I say my wife sits on the front row every Sunday, and about once or twice I'll look over, and she's like, oh, dear God, I can't believe he said that. Um, we've got a lady in our church who's an elementary school teacher that she has a running list on her phone of words that I frequently say incorrectly. Um, so there will be some of that as well today. So uh, Pastor Randy, thank you for the opportunity. You guys are amazing. I welcome our church every Sunday. It's good to see your beautiful smiling faces. So if you don't consider yourself beautiful, at least smile because that will help us all in the process. Um, so my wife, Serena, is here with me. I've got three daughters, Audra, Ashton, and Allie. They are 16, 13, and 8. Um, and then we brought a tag along today because we knew my youngest would not go to kids' church if she didn't have a friend to go with her. But here we go. She gets to hear me. She, she, she's, like, she's never in service, always in kids' church, and always tells me I preach too long. So I don't know what is up with that. I'm like, you don't even know. You weren't even in there with us. So Pastor Randy is right. Um, I grew up in... A a rural Assemblies of God church. I was so rural that I can't even enunciate rural uh, correctly most of the time. Um, I was called to preach at 16, um, but really didn't know what that meant. Had no aspirations for vocational ministry. I'm an introvert. Given a choice of things to do, being on a stage in front of a bunch of people would be about the last thing on the list right above a root root canal with no Novocaine. Like, it's not not my cup of tea. Um, So I went to school. I I graduated with a degree in accounting. The funny thing is, I'm borderline ADHD, and ADHD, ADHD in accounting, which requires a lot of focus don't really mesh well together. Um, so I think God rescue out of, rescued me out of that. My senior year of college, I was a few months away from graduation, went to a revival service. How many of you guys remember those things? Went to a revi- revival service. God wrecked my world, gave a definitive call into ministry. Again, I didn't know what that looked like. Kind of freaked me out. Um, but several months later, a guy that I had grown up going to church with my whole life, He's about 10 years older than me. He had been youth pastoring in our area for a number of years. He took his first church as lead pastor um, in another city. And several months into that, he called me. He was like, hey, I want you to come be my youth pastor. And I was like, okay, this is, this is where God has been leading. So um, I went and did that thing. Um, so how many of you have been in church at least five years? Been like, yeah, almost everybody. How about 10 years? 20 years? Ooh, look at the hands going up. Over 30 years. So like, like all of you, like many of you, I grew up in church. Like from the moment my mom was able to bring me, I was sitting on the pew of church, born and raised in it my whole life. And like many of you have seen my fair share of the ugly side of church. People that know God, people that claim to be saved by God, people that stand in services like this and sing about the love and the mercy and the grace of God. I've seen those people act like the devil toward one another. And some of you are nodding and shaking your head because you've been there. Um, so I, I go as youth pastor of the very first church, been there a couple months, and, and they couldn't pay me a whole lot. You know, it was very much part-time. But there was a guy in the church, he was actually on the board, that he kept the books, wrote the checks, 
notes, did all the thing. And the pastor had a broad idea that like, hey, Brian just graduated with a degree in accounting. We pay this guy to do that. Why don't we instead pay Brian to do that so we can pay him a little extra money? So he invites me to the board meeting where he's going to present this idea. I'm like, okay, fun. That sounds cool. Like what's more exciting on a Tuesday night than going to a church board meeting, right? You know, so um, show up this board meeting. He, he presents the idea. All of the board members, except one, are in great favor of this idea. Yeah, let's pay the youth pastor more money, except for the guy that was in control of the money. So he sees this obviously going to pass, not unanimously. He proceeds to stand up, walk out the doors without saying a word. Everybody's looking around the table and I'm like, does this normally happen at church board meetings? Kind of thing. Like, oh no. And, and all the, after about a minute and a half, he comes storming back in, got the checkbook in hand, slams it down on the table and turns around and leaves again. Not just the meeting, the church. Like he never came back. He was so mad. And I was like, oh, so this is what church is. Now, that was something we can look back and laugh at. At the moment, it wasn't so funny. But like many of you, I can share stories that aren't nearly as funny and are equally as heartbreaking. And there's been enough that I've seen on the ugly side of church that has given me reason that, like many of you, I could have walked away. And never came back and rationalized, well, I've got this relationship with Jesus. I'm going to do this thing and I will catch you guys in eternity, I hope. But here's the thing today. I love the local church. Love the local church. In the words of Bill Hybels, I believe the local church is the hope of the world. In spite of our flaws, in spite of our failures, like many of you, I've seen the beauty. I've seen the power. I've seen the strength of the local church, of the body of believers, people that are deeply flawed, yet redeemed and being redeemed by Jesus. There's been seasons of our life where we have been supported, buoyed by the strength, the love, and the grace of the people of God that have brought us meals like your youth pastors. We lost a child um, back when we were still in Arkansas, and it was the love and the grace and the prayers and the support of the people of God that buoyed us in that season. There's been seasons of transition where we didn't know what was next or where we were going to go, that the people of God brought us groceries paid our bills, literally sustained us in seasons of darkness and desperation. Today, I love the local church. I still believe the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 and 18 when He said, On this rock, I will build My church and the gates of hell, the faults and the failures of My people will not over." it today. I believe that Jesus is still deeply invested in His church, is still building His church right here in our city, right here at Covenant Life, down the street at Genesis, right across the street at Elevate, all across our city in places just like this among people like you and I that are flawed and fail often. Jesus is still building His church. Years ago, I read a story that just wrecked me. There was a story that we're all familiar with. Young man that was raised in a very fundamentalist, rules-based kind of church. The thou shalt and thou shalt not. 
And when he was finally old enough that his parents gave him the freedom of choice of you can come, whether or not it's, it's up to you, you can do whatever you want. He did what a lot of young people have a tendency to do. Peace out. I'll see you later, mom and dad. And he went out and he just lived his life in his young adult years, went to college, pursued the career, pursued the family, did the thing, followed the mantra of our age. It's your life. Do what you want to with it. You've only got one life. Live it up. Make the best of it. Until he got into his later 20s and found out that life can be hard. Raising a family, maintaining a marriage, working doing all the things that can get difficult. And his wife made a decision of like, hey, I want to raise our family in church. You can come if you want to, but I'm going. So she started attending a local church in their community, taking their children week after week. And finally one day he was like, you know what? I'll go just to make you happy, to keep the peace already predetermined in his mind what this was going to be like, what these people were like, what this was going to be about. And yet this time there was something different. These people were different. It wasn't the rules, hellfire and brimstone that he had grown up with. It was a people that embodied grace and acceptance. That, hey, we're just glad you're here kind of thing. And over a period of time, the Holy Spirit began to melt his heart. And all of the walls of defense began to come down. Until one Sunday, overwhelmed by the grace of God, he made his way back home to the Father. And he writes in this story that years later, after getting involved in church and serving and beginning to grow, he made this comment that wrecked me. He said, Jesus saved my soul, but the church saved my life. Jesus saved my soul. But the church saved my life. And there are some of us in this room today that that resonates with us in a deep way. Because it has been the people of God. People that maybe didn't even know us that well, but people that were so committed to Jesus that they loved us some of the, through some of the most difficult seasons of our life. And while Jesus has redeemed us for eternity... It was the church. It was the people of God that were the means of our salvation in that particular season of time. It was so encouraging to hear your uh, young people were at Mission Arlington this last week. Um, our youth ministry had, goes there in over fall break every year. So that's cool uh, kind of likeness there. But back in the early 1990s, um, Tommy, Tommy Barnett, who's one of the most prominent names in the Assemblies of God, um, pastored Phoenix Assembly of God for years. It was considered one of the largest churches in America, by far the largest Assembly of God church in the country. But he was approached by the district officials of the Southern California district about possibly coming to Los Angeles to plant a church in a church in a city of over eight million people. There was no AG church that ran over 200 people. And they were desperate for a life-giving Pentecostal church in Los Angeles. And Tommy, Bar Tommy Barnett met with them, traveled to L.A. a number of times, prayed through the decision, and finally came to the place of, I feel God calling me to be a part of this, but I don't feel led to leave my church in Phoenix. So they settled on the idea that his son Matthew who was 20 at that time, had grown up in Phoenix First Assembly, had seen ministry done on a large scale, who was called the ministry, that his son
son Matthew would lead this endeavor in Los Angeles. And the Southern California district officials gifted them a church, um, the historic Bethel Church, which had come out of the Azusa Street Revival, considered to be the origins of the uh, modern Pentecostal movement, especially here in America. The only thing is time and demographics had changed. And Bethel Church was a largely Filipino church by this time. And Matthew Barnett was not only white, but his mother is of Scandinavian descent. So he is white, white. So he did not particularly fit in in this very ethnic church and ethnic community. But he went committed that, man, God's going to use us. We're going to build, plant a life-giving Pentecostal church here in the city. And he writes in his book, um, The Cause Within You, that he quickly grew this church of 39 faithful members down to zero. They were like, this is just not working. So just in this act of desperation, just believing, knowing God had called him here, Matthew just rolled up his sleeves. Like, we're going to obey God. We're going to be faithful. But after months and months of just labor and effort and prayer, just really didn't feel like any, any, any traction was being gained. And he writes in his book that one night, in just a night of restlessness and frustration, couldn't sleep, so he left his apartment and just walked through the Echo Park um, portion of inner city Los Angeles, which was right near the church and the community that he, that he served and where he lived. And he writes that what he observed that night was like straight out of a movie scene. I mean, there's prostitution, there's drug dealing, there's homelessness everywhere. Just this utter visual scene of despair and hopelessness. And he's just crying out to God. I'm like, God, I came here. Like, I left my life of comfort and security, and I came here for you to build a great church. I've done this all for you. And he says, Lord, look at this mess. You brought me here. I came here willingly, full of hope and excitement and passion. I came here to build you a great church. And he writes that at that moment, the Spirit spoke definitively to him saying, I did not bring you here to build a great church. I brought you here to build people. These people. You build the people, and I'll build the church. You build the people, and I'll build the church. Reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4, when He announces His ministry. And He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, God has sent me. I have come for people. I've come for the broken. I've come for the desperate. I've come for the hopeless, the homeless, the poor. I have come to build people. And I have found in years of leading a church that sometimes we can get so busy doing the things of church. I know I have been guilty. That sometimes we lose sight of what church is all about. That we're not here to build a name, a brand, not here to try to move to a larger building, to be known in the community. We're here for the sake of people, for the broken, the hopeless, the hurting, 
the addicted, the oppressed. We are here to be a, a bastion of light and hope for people that are in desperate need of salvation. The Dream Center story continued. In 1996, with the assistance of the Southern California District, they were able to, to purchase the abandoned historic Queen of Angels Hospital. At one time in L.A., over 70% of all births in L.A. County were born in the Queen of Angels Hospital. It had long since been abandoned. It was a bastion of homelessness and just all kinds of disrepair, but they were able to purchase it and begin the rehabilitation process of the building literally story by story, just making it functional for ministry. They began to focus on ministries. They coined it the Dream Center as it would be a place for people to dream again. People whose lives have been wrecked by prison, by drug addiction, by homelessness, that it would be a place where people could find restoration and could find hope again. And week after week, month after month, they launched new ministries with one singular purpose, building people, helping people rebuild their lives. One of the most significant ministries they started was what they called Adopt-A-Block where literally every Saturday, volunteers would gather and just walk the streets of the community surrounding the Dream Center, picking up trash. They would go door to door, asking people, how can we help? How can we serve you? Can we pray for you? They would mow people's yards. They would haul away trash, just trying to serve people in any tangible way that they could. And month after month, year after year, the character of those neighborhoods begin to change. The crime rate, in the, in the community surrounding the Dream Center fell by over 70% in the years following its birth in that area. Restoration was literally tangibly taking place on the outskirts of the Dream Center. In the summers of 2005-2006, when we were youth pastoring in Arkansas, we took uh, groups of teenagers there because the Dream Center relied on volunteer efforts, short, hosted short-term mission trips all around the year. And we took groups out there and they build themselves as the city that never sleeps. That there is literally ministry going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But like most church people, they lie. Because the first year we went, this was pre-iPhones and maps on demand, we flew out of Little Rock, Arkansas into Dallas, from Dallas to L.A. Well, on our connecting flight in Dallas, there was a malfunction on the door. We sat on the tarmac for an hour. I am like intensely claustrophobic and like just shoot me. Like, I do not want to be trapped in a round cylinder thing, especially 30,000 feet over the air. Not my cup of tea. But we sit on the tarmac for an hour. Finally, they're like, hey, we're going to have to put you on another plane. So we're like hours delayed getting to L.A. I'm a nervous wreck. I, I'm kind of anxiety-fueled. I'm responsible for all these teenagers. So we get, to, we get to LAX hours later than we're supposed to. It's dark now. We get to the baggage claim only to find out our baggage didn't come on the plane that we're on. So we had to wait for the next flight from Dallas to arrive. It's well after midnight. We're at like rural 
country boy from Arkansas in the big city. I'm like, this is my night. Just Jesus come quickly now. So we hang out in the international hub of LAX for a few hours. Finally, our flight gets there. We go to the rental car place, which thank God was still open. We get our minivan, which is going to be our transportation for the week. We break out our map quest directions. Because that's where we are, folks, 2005, and navigate our way to the Dream Center. We get there about four o'clock in the morning. As I mentioned, they are in inner city Los Angeles, inner city Los Angeles. And they lied because everybody was asleep. We park in the old place that looks like a parking spot and it's dark. And we are walking around this place, a bunch of folks from Arkansas. Like, not from the big city. Scared to ever-loving death. Because every door's locked. We finally bump into a security guard that, thank God he had a shirt on that said security because he was a big man. And if I would have seen him under any other circumstances, I would have thought I was about to go see Jesus because he was scary. We got to know his story. He had actually been a part of the Dream Center because he had been rescued from the streets. And I was like, that makes perfect sense because you're scary, bro. But fortunately, he let us in. We slept in the lobby till they came to rescue us the next morning. But anyway, that's just my funny story. They lie like because all church people lie. They are not a city that never... One guy, one guy being awake is not the city that never sleeps. But later that week, we go out ministering on the streets in that, in that area. And one day we're walking through Echo Park. This place that Matthew Barnett has described as just this bastion of despair and hopelessness. And by the time we arrive, Echo Park looks nothing like that because of the consistent presence of the church. The people of God committed to the restoration of communities. And just a few years ago, Echo Park was named one of the 50 most livable cities in the United States. Now, I hear that like you do. I'm like, yeah, you couldn't pay me enough to go live somewhere like that, especially in L.A. But that shows the power of the people of God committed to being faithful to their identity as the people of God. One of the questions that we have started wrestling with recently in Genesis is this. If we shut our doors tomorrow, would the community notice? Because if we're candid today, if we're candid, can we be honest in the house of God? There's churches in our area that if they shut down tomorrow, not everybody would know. I mean, can we be candid? <laughs> like, it's okay. I'm overly candid sometimes. Some churches, if they close their doors, nobody would notice except the handful of people that attend there. That's not to condemn them. That's not to throw stones. That's just the reality of the situation. Because sometimes we get so invested in coming to church and maintaining church that we forget to be the church. Right? And, what, and, we, and we have not always been faithful to that. Because in the early, early years, I'll be really honest, my ego was too invested and trying to build it. I needed our church to be successful so that it validated me. And it took a number of years of, of kind of being stuck for God to pull back the layers of my heart and be like, hey, bro, it, it's, it's not, there's no magic bullet to fixing this. It's a, it's a you issue. It's your heart issue. This is too much about you and not enough about me. 
So for the last few years, it's been a relearning process for me. A recalibration of being reminded what the church is for. That we are the people of God on mission for God in our cities so that we can be agents of healing and hope for broken people that we rub shoulders with every day. And over the last couple of years, our true north, and again, we don't always live up to this, but our true north is this, that we want to be a church the city cannot live without. That we're so invested in helping people that if we were to shut the doors, people would be like, no, 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 you can't do that because we need you. Again, not from an ego standpoint where we can puff out our chest and be like, whoa, look at us, look how important we are. But no, because of what God is doing through us is having real tangible impact in the lives of people. That is now our hope and aspiration. And I just want to spend a few minutes this morning looking at one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4 so we can talk about how we can be that kind of church how we can be a people that God uses to bring hope and healing to our community. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Your pastor is a gift to the church. And he is a gift in many, many ways. And I'm sure his wife would amen to that heartily this morning. That God called people like him and I not to do the work of ministry. I always say it's God's infinite sense of humor that he called me into this because this is not the thing I would have chosen. But it's their responsibility. It's, it's the pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles that God is called to equip God's people to do, to do what? To do his work. What is his work? Well, Jesus made that clear. I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to give recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted. So God has is, God is designed this thing we call the church so that we can be the embodiment of His work, of His ministry in our community, that we are the people of God on mission for God in our circles of influence in our communities. Their responsibility is to equip the people to do His work, to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This morning, the gospel of Jesus is not just about individual salvation. It's not, I'm a sinner, I'm going to hell, I need to pray this prayer and invite Jesus into my heart so that I can go to heaven when I die. There is an element of that where salvation is personal and individual. But God's salvation is also cosmic and corporal. That God didn't come just to save individual souls. That God came to redeem and restore this broken world. That what we read in Genesis 1 of a world that God created 
David that he said it is very good. It's what the Hebrews describe as God's shalom, which which in a very literal sense means peace. Uh, Jews still greet each other with that. We're like, hey man, how are you? Jews greet each other with shalom, which would mean peace be to you. But but shalom means more than just peace as in, oh yeah, everything's kind of good in my life. It's this sense of wholeness that all is right in the world. All is as God intended for it to be. And when Jesus announces the arrival, His arrival, He says in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That God was now at work in the world restoring the brokenness we read about in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, that redemption happens on an individual and personal level as we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. God then in turn uses us, fills us with His Spirit so that as we have received healing, as we've tasted the grace of God, we can now be agents of that same healing, distributors of that same grace to people around us. I know that in my conversations with Pastor Randy, you guys are familiar with the language of of gathering and scattering. That that we gather to be formed as the people of God. That church is important. Not as a a means of, uh, I've got to check that box for the week. I was a good Christian. I showed up to church this week. But we gather not not to make God happy or to check that religious box. But we gather for a purpose. That in our gathering, God is at work among us. Us, even in ways we often don't realize, don't, don't even sense at the moment, in the same way that if you go to the gym tomorrow and you spend 30 minutes on the treadmill or you go to the weights and you lift some weights, you're going to feel that. But when you get home and look in the mirror, I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, you don't look any different. Like nothing changes. I wish that were different. Like, come on, can I get an amen? Like, we did the thing, but there's no immediate noticeable difference. But if you do that over a period of a year, two years, five years, what happens? Things change. Because it's the process through which our bodies are transformed. And the same thing is true of church as we gather. We sing. We pray together. We encourage one another. We may not leave feeling any differently than when we came. But if you keep doing that over and over and over, if some of you have come to testify, what happens? We change because we taste and see that the Lord is good. In our gathering, we learn the rhythms by which we should live every day. We don't just worship on Sundays. We don't just pray on Sundays. God is not just present on Sundays. But in our gatherings, we learn to condition ourselves to the rhythms of grace. Of that God is present with us always. That the Spirit of God inhabits us. And as we pray and as we worship on Monday and on Tuesday morning and we set the alarm a little earlier so we can make space to meet with God in those pri- as, as we practice in private what we're learning together in corporate. We're transformed. Slowly by slowly. And that's what Paul is driving at here. That God has given the, the ministry of the church to equip us to do the work of ministry, not on Sunday, 
We don't just serve people in this context, but when you're at work on Monday, when you're at a PTA meeting on a Tuesday night, when you're stuck at the ball fields all day on Saturday, guess what? The Spirit of God is present in you in that moment to be a source of healing, grace, and hope to those people in your circles of influence. Because just like your youth pastor is suffering this morning, there's people that you rub shoulders with every day that are dealing with the reality of life, the pain, the hurt, that feeling of being overwhelmed by all the things that are going on in our life. And God has put you in their circle to be a source of grace and hope, to be Jesus to them in those moments. So we gather to be formed as the people of God, but then we scatter to live on mission for God. Because we are recipients of the grace of God, we've become distributors of the grace of God everywhere we go. We are the embodiment of Jesus in His plan of redemption and restoration for this broken world. The church is in the world for the sake of the world. It's in the world for the sake of the world. And our gathering is important, but it's not just important for the sense of being like, oh, I fulfilled my religious duty. It's important in the sense that in our gathering, in our participation, we're being shaped so that we can become the people that God uses to bring redemption and healing to this broken world. Just real quickly today, Ephesians is probably my favorite book of the Bible. And I love, there's this beautiful symmetry. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all theological, big, grand, glory, mystery, grace of God. And the back three chapters are all intensely practical. Of This, this is who God is. This is what God has done. And in light of that, this is how we should live. But there's this beautiful kind of trend in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I want you to see. I want you to see the goodness and the grace of God so that you can know. And when the Bible uses the word know, it's not talking about, oh, somebody conveyed some information to you, so now you know. It's, it's an experiential it's an intimate, I've, I know this, not because somebody told me, but I've been there, I've done it, I've got the t-shirt, I know this. Paul says, I want you to know the hope to which he's called you and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. I want you to know this personally and intimately, but, but this power is not just for you, there's an outworking of this power. Then Ephesians chapter 2 that we're all familiar with. Paul says that we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. We were separated from the very life of God. But verse 4, which may be the most beautiful verse in all of Scripture, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. He brought us from death to life because of His grace. But it doesn't stop there in verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. This grace is redeeming you. It's transforming you. But we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? 
to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's that inworking of grace that's transforming us, but God also wants to move through us so that we can do good works on His behalf. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, He says, I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being. So again, that inworking of the Spirit, the inworking of the grace of God, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, again, that inworking, being transformed by the love of God, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. So now we're moving from individual to corporate. It's not just about me, but it's about us. It's the body of Christ to know the love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that you may give full expression to all that Jesus is to those around you. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And we have a tendency to quote that scripture and we stop there. But Paul doesn't. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. All through scripture, the work of God in us ultimately becomes the work of God through us. The redeeming, transforming grace of God doesn't stop here. But it's the overflow of that that impacts and influences those in our circles of influence. That happens on an individual level, in our, in our relationships, in our homes, at our work, and it also happens on a corporate level. That what God does in here becomes a microcosm, if you will, of what God wants to do out there. We gather to be formed as the people of God, but we scatter to live on mission for Him so that through us, the world around us may come to know Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment this morning? Father, I love you today. God, I thank you for this body of believers. God, I thank you for Pastor Randy. God, the years of labor, tears of sowing into this place and into this people. God, I thank you for the influence of this church, their consistent, faithful ministry to more, to the surrounding areas and literally around the world through their missions, endeavors, and missions activity. God, I thank you for all that you have done. And Father, I pray that you, God, would set your favor upon them, God, fresh and anew. God, that your spirit would be at work among them. God, that as we gather week in and week out, just faithful, faithful to you. God, that your grace, your spirit would be at work in our lives, God. And that through that transformation, God, through our knowing you, God, through the transforming work of grace, through being rooted and grounded in the depth of your love, God, that it would overflow in power in good works, in influence, God, in our circles of influence into the community around us for the glory of your name. Amen and amen. Thank you guys very much. Pastor Randy. Word, get the yellow mic here, Johnny. I'm going to, we're, we're going to dismiss, but I'm going to ask Brian and Serena to go stand by that back door. And also Audra and Ashton and Allie and Parker, right?
You can be a part of the team. You guys go stand by the back door. This is what we're going to do. If you normally come by and say something hateful to me after church on a Sunday, say it to Brian today. Because I'm going to be back there. And if you normally go out this back door over here, I want you to switch and go out this way because I want you to touch them. And I want to take as long as it takes for you to introduce yourself. And he's going to remember everybody's name. Not going to be a problem. But um, I, I think it's pretty obvious today that we feel like here are two different fellowships doing the same thing. Really, called to the same mission. And the, the whole, this whole combination thing, this whole merger thing, is just that we believe maybe we could do what we're doing together better than we're doing it individually. I think Covenant Life Assembly would be better if we partner with Genesis. Now, what does the Lord say? We're trying to figure that out. 